This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill makes medical billing easy, fast, and pain-free. Spend your time on patient care. Let us handle the billing for you. Dr. Bill is now available for free. Visit drbill.ca. It's dr-bill.ca and get started today. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Esselt Jones. Esselt is a professor of history at the University of Manitoba and part-time faculty member at the Department of Community Health Sciences, also at the University of Manitoba. She's also the author of the award-winning book, Influenza 1918, Disease, Death, and Struggle in Winnipeg. She has joined me today on this podcast to discuss the 1918 influenza pandemic, how it exposed social inequalities, and how all this relates to our current COVID-19 global pandemic. Welcome, Esselt. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here, and I'm really happy that you've written this article for us uh, in Medicine and Society uh, in CMHA. You start out your article by saying that COVID-19, like the influenza outbreak in 1918, is not a democratic disease. Can you describe what kinds of social inequalities surfaced during the 1918 flu pandemic? If I can speak just to what I know about Canada, um, it seems fairly clear that at least in urban centres in Canada, immigrant and working class districts of urban centres had higher death rates from influenza. It's hard to say exactly what the case rates were because the data are not completely reliable. But there were, you know, there were impacts of things like poor quality housing, poverty, as well as unequal access to medical care that played a role in how people experience the disease. The Indigenous experience is still not as well researched as it could be, but the data that we have for death rates among uh, Indians living on reserve, legally categorized under the Indian Act, is that their death rates were significantly higher than those for non-Indigenous Canadians. And how much higher they were did vary quite a lot from community to community. So we don't uh, completely understand that local picture, but there were significant inequities there. And a lot of that had to do, of course, with the socioeconomic impact of colonialism at the time, um, the lack of meaningful treaty rights for those who were treaty people, um, and also very poor access to medical care. Uh, there were probably also factors like underlying conditions such as tuberculosis, uh, which we know was a significant problem, for instance, in residential school experiences. And I wonder if also we can, we can set the stage a little bit to look at, at 1918, I mean, that's a very different time from right now. Um, people are coming back from World War One, and I guess a lot of people from Winnipeg returned. I don't know how a person can imagine that time. And in, in your article, you mentioned, for example, there was no provincial ministry of health. Um, so how did, how did the government, how did society tackle what looked like a wave coming at it uh, without having the things we take for granted, the infrastructure we take for granted today? Well, you're right. It was really difficult. I mean, uh, uh, healthcare um, in terms of government services was still very small um, and underdeveloped in Canada at the time. So it was still largely a municipal responsibility, uh, healthcare. It wasn't just Manitoba that didn't have a provincial department of health. 
neither did Ontario, uh, neither did Quebec. So what we see is a real lack of capacity there. And that, I think, plays out in rural areas as well, where local municipalities were responsible for disease control measures, but often those infrastructures weren't in place, and so they had to be pulled together very quickly. The lack of access to what we call today Medicare, of course, made a very big difference for people, not just in terms of whether they had to pay or not, uh, which was actually quite unclear in different places during the pandemic, whether people could access care without being uh, billed for it, but also in terms of access for communities that are outside of major urban centers. So again, uh, although we don't know enough about this, access to healthcare for rural people was very patchy. So there are a lot of very serious systemic um, capacity issues uh, at the time, in addition to lack of access to government programs for income support, for instance. In your article, you refer to the ancient, I guess there's an ancient technique of quarantining. At the time in, in, in your research, did you find that, that governments were effectively restricting travel like they are today? Like, how did uh, governments intervene to limit the spread of infection? There really weren't the same level of restrictions on mobility. Uh, you do hear some smaller communities attempting to limit movement in and out. So, you know, there, the, the public health measures were very much focused on isolating the individual uh, infected person from spreading the disease to the community. But even that, of course, had really severe limits uh, to it. Um, people still went to work unless they were sick, for instance. I mean, it's uh, social distancing is something similar to quarantine, but in 1918-19, it was much less widespread. And I should add, too, that public health officials at the time were not that keen on using um, traditional quarantine practices, in part because the, the, the tools that had been used up to that point saw, for instance, placards put on the homes of people who were infected with diseases. So if you had a family member, for instance, who had whooping cough or diphtheria, um, if that person wasn't hospitalized, your doorway would have a sign on it that said, would say there was a person with an infectious disease inside. And this was a very stigmatizing practice, and the public did not like it. So what they were afraid of was that people wouldn't come forward if they were ill. So there was a lot of tension between um, political leaders, this is, was the case in Winnipeg at least, who wanted stricter quarantining measures, and public health officials who saw quarantine as double-edged, as having both potentially positive impacts, but also a lot of negative ones. Well, that, I mean, I'm fascinated by Winnipeg partly because I'm from Winnipeg, but I'm, I'm also curious to know, and you mentioned in your article the, the great strike, the general strike, and in, in, um, that, that sort of flowed out of the pandemic. And is that what you're talking about here, that somehow concerns about restricting movement fed into labor unrest? Well, that's, it's a good question. The, the connections between influenza and labor unrest are both broad and very specific, if that makes any sense. Because I think what we see today with COVID-19 is that social inequalities are just, you know, things that we don't normally make much note of or comment 
uh, on and less we're part of political or social movements, um, anti-poverty movements, for instance. For most normal people, we just we don't see uh, the same level of exposure to our awareness of inequality. And in 1918-19, you have a similar situation where suddenly the impact of social inequality becomes very clear when the virus really settles into um, core districts of the city. And so people's anxiety about inequality is much greater um, than it would have been even in a very class-divided city like Winnipeg at the time. And it unlooses a sort of tension because the legitimacy of the state sometimes comes under challenge during pandemics. You have a different response to what are long-standing structural inequalities. But there were also very specific issues. Um, for example, the few people who were completely taken off work were people who were employed, for instance, in the entertainment sector in Winnipeg. So people who worked at movie theaters or concert halls or bars and lounges were those workplaces were closed. And at the time, many of those workers were unionized, especially those who were working in places like movie theaters or concert halls. And their union representatives tried to get wage replacements for them because they, like most working class families, had no savings and were living paycheck to paycheck. And when they were taken off work for six weeks, this causes a lot of hardship in their families. But for the most part, the message from government was, well, you know, too bad we all have to do our bit. Uh, and this is one of the things that is a specific um, incitement, I guess, to labor unrest that comes just a few months later. There are also other issues that affect poor people quite severely, like the cost of burial. Um, so there's a lot of price gouging in the funeral industry. Uh, working people had long attempted to insure themselves um, financially um, from an undignified burial for their family members. So they would use small amounts of money to buy, for example, mutual aid-based funeral insurance so that their their loved ones could receive an appropriate and dignified burial. Were there other forms of private help uh, that was that became available where the government sort of to fill in the gaps or the government uh, fell through in a way or didn't have adequate funding? Well, there wasn't widespread private health insurance the way we see a little bit later in the, in the 30s and 40s. I mean, wealthy people uh, could afford access to medical care. For poor people, they often tried to negotiate this through some publicly funded hospital care. So the largest hospital in Winnipeg took what they call public patients. Um, access to that healthcare was means tested. And often, you know, those are very intrusive questions that, again, not equitable necessarily. There were mutual benefit funds or mutual aid funds that in cities like Winnipeg or maybe a place like Hamilton and probably in Toronto were ethnically based. So ethnic working class communities had these funds that they would use and they had short-term sick benefits for people when they were taken ill off the job um, or they might have um, a death benefit to, to pay usually if they lost, uh, there was a loss of the male breadwinner. Those funds were really severely taxed by the 1918 outbreak, but they did attempt to make some um, compensation to families that were the most severely affected. 
But a lot of what happens in terms of mutual aid is immediate kind of um, spontaneous, almost mutual aid fundraising efforts, uh, support efforts like food kitchens and things like that. And there's a lot of volunteerism in 1918-19 that fills the gap where today we're relying a bit more on um, government income supports and services. You mentioned something about segregation in hospitals. And what even made that possible? Because in a way, segregating by, by racial groups seems unthinkable. Like, were there, was there some science or pseudoscience behind that segregation? Or is this purely uh, sort of a, a political kind of thing? Well, a lot of scholars have written about the growth of scientific racism in the 19th century. In a country like Canada, you had, unfortunately, medicine and science often sharing views that were based in uh, what we might broadly call eugenic thinking. Um, social reformers uh, were saw uh, the human race, which is the word that they used, as divided into categories with Anglo-Saxon um, and Germanic peoples at the top of the hierarchy, the racial hierarchy, and basically brown people at the bottom indigenous people, people of color. Um, so those attitudes were extremely widespread from scientific and medical communities down into sort of middle class reform communities. And working class and racialized people often become the target of those kind of views. And so this is what makes it possible, right, for us to have racially segregated wards in these public general hospitals that were just starting to become quite large in the early 20th century. There's been quite a bit of work about this um, for British Columbia, for instance, where Vancouver had segregated wards for Asian people in the basement. It was quite common for general hospitals if they would agree to take Indigenous patients, which wasn't always the case, um, to have segregated wards or wings for Indigenous people. Were there beliefs that somehow uh, some groups were more contagious or more prone to get infected? Well, you know, if we think, for example, of early 20th century, late 19th century immigrant screening, you know, the, the classic images come from U.S. history of, of the immigrant screening at places like Ellis Island, where they saw thousands of people a day and uh, on what Amy Fairchild has called on the line, um, this line of, of inspectors who would take a visual scan of immigrants and see whether or not they uh, were um, carrying an, a loathsome or infectious disease. Canada's immigration law in the early 20th century was modified to make it very clear that people with infectious disease would not be allowed into the country. But there were also other exclusions, like for people with physical disabilities. Um, so it, it wasn't an enlightened or progressive system, and race was the key organizing principle in that. So even um, people whose skin was white could be racialized. Um, in Western Canada, this was most frequently people coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, uh, people coming from the present-day Ukraine, Poland, Galicia, part, parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Many of those newcomers didn't speak English, and so they're also the language that they spoke became wrapped up in assessments, for instance, of their intellectual abilities. So you often see people from 
Europe categorized as feeble-minded because there is a medical uh, sort of predisposition to viewing people this way. And throughout that wave of mass immigration, which just closes off as World War One starts, there's uh, there's a common view of newcomers as potential disease vectors, but particularly people who are already racialized by this racial hierarchy that I was talking about earlier. So in 1918-19, the healthcare system is structured along these lines, and it's not mm. equitable. And did you find that uh, women were looked at differently in, in terms of their ability to resist infections or survive infections? There wasn't really the awareness of how mortality would sort of shift out as we're going through the pandemic. Uh, there, was, there is a lot of concern for pregnant women because many pregnant women miscarried, some of them died. So pregnancy was a real point of vulnerability. I, I don't think it, gender doesn't become the real fault line in 1918-19 as much as age does because that, that pandemic kills mostly people between the ages of 20 and 50. There's a particular concern for people, um, and it's kind of a shock, I guess, uh, because, of course, the community was quite used to endemic diseases that tended to kill the very young and the very old, uh, people whose immune systems were not robust enough to fight them off. Um, but a disease that killed people in the prime of life was... Uh, quite frightening to people. I read the introduction to your book, and something you had talked about was um, that the 1918 flu pandemic did more than just expose existing social tensions, and it created actual new ones. And I was kind of wondering if you want to talk about what you meant by that. I think of the organism itself as a sort of historical actor, because it does different things to both the body and to society than are the norm. So this arises in part from that kind of puzzle um, that asks the question when it comes to social inequality, what is different about a pandemic from what goes on every day? Um, and partly I'm interested in that question because I've always been interested in the historical coincidence between pandemic outbreaks and social unrest, some of which results in, in social change, but usually over a longer term. So I, I started thinking at, at the time that I was writing that work about what is distinct about an epidemic outbreak or a global pandemic. And it, there's this sort of world-turned-upside-down sense to it. Um, and I want to emphasize here that death rates during 1918-19 were much higher than what we're seeing in Canada right now. So, you know, there were in Winnipeg, which was at that time a city of about 180,000 people, there were 1,200 deaths. So this is a lot of deaths. And so we have to try to imagine what it felt like to live through that. So that's what I mean in part when I say that it creates these new tensions because people see the injustice of what they're living through at the time. Um, they understand that if they are poor newcomer families living in neighborhoods where housing is bad and so on, 
that they are more vulnerable to the disease. They don't need epidemiologists to tell them that, you know, a year or two later. They're living through that. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. What, what does it do to their world? And I've always wanted to look at the capacity that people had to survive events like that and how it changed their sense of, of um, their communities and so on. So in my work, I look as much after the pandemic as I look at what happens during the pandemic. And there's a, sh a sense of common, uh, a shared event, right? A, a large-scale, transformative shared event. And I think this contributes to a broader social solidarity at the time, particularly because of the reliance on each other that is so evident in 1918-19, because the state didn't really help people much. Um, and efforts at containing the disease helped, but they didn't solve the problem entirely. And so there, there was a new way of looking at one's place in the community, I guess. So by the time we get to May of 1919, I, I mean, labor unrest had existed for a long time across Canada. But you have a lot of people joining that general strike in May that are not unionized. They have no connection with the labor movement. They're just people who are working. And they withdraw their labor for six weeks, which is a long time. And again, there, they rely on mutual aid in order to survive on, on the work of women largely and providing money and places to live and food to eat for people who um, have gone on strike. So the two events don't occur at the same time, but they kind of they kind of parallel each other. And that is distinct from what uh, social tensions always exist around health and inequality in that period. It's, um, it's one of the ways in which an epidemic is uh, not life as usual. I'm wondering if we can come to the present. Let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. What do you think about it's doing with inequalities, our awareness of, of gender, vulnerable populations, what kind of themes do you see coming out today that look similar or perhaps a little different than, than 1918? Well, there are some differences. Um, I can start with those because the depth of the economic shutdown is unique. There were economic consequences, of course, for families during 1918-19, but it's a very different set of circumstances because of a government-mandated economic shutdown. So that part, I think historians are going to have to sort out later. But the similarities are there, right? You see the inequities emerging. Uh, in Canada, we have this particular issue around long-term care, and I'm not an expert in the long-term care system, so I can't really speak to the extent to which it affects patients from certain socioeconomic backgrounds more than others. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that the workers in that sector are, you know, they tend to be, they're certainly at the bottom of the healthcare hierarchy, but they tend to be um, in places like Montreal, for instance, non-white, coming from poor racialized communities. And this has been well documented. So again, you see these, these inequalities emerge. Um, I think for Canadians, the, the role of racial inequality in COVID has become much clearer to us by looking at our neighbors to the South you know, there are these terrible health inequalities in the United States because of the lack of um, a unified, universal, publicly available health system. And there are, we also are seeing very clearly um, these differences, these racial differences. You know, it's 
the question of unrest, I think, like today, you know, in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep, I was reading all this news coverage from Minneapolis, which is a city I go to all the time. And it's just being torn apart because of police violence. But, you know, all of a sudden, just like that, you have these uh, demonstrations erupting all over the U.S. And, you know, nobody in the media coverage so far is talking about COVID. Um, but those are not unrelated events, right? I mean, the, the way things kind of come apart is something that we need to think about. Uh, I mean, at the start of COVID in Winnipeg, there were three Indigenous people killed within like 10 days by the police. It's okay to talk about, you know, how it reveals inequalities and so on. Um, but even in the midst of a pandemic, you have an opportunity to make a decision about how you're going to go on stuff, you know? take a breath and think about what's going on when people protest instead of just having a knee-jerk response to it. Could you talk a bit about how people and communities and at those two different levels deal with the pandemic? Well, I guess because we're now at that moment where we're talking about reopening, right? And uh, there's been conversation about that. Um, two things I've been thinking about. One of them is this question that we've already talked a bit about, which is the connection between um, epidemics and social unrest. And I think it's really important. I mean, in Canada, we've been fortunate that resistance to public health measures has been fairly muted. Uh, doesn't mean it's there, though. And I think we have to pay careful attention to where people's trust is at. And one of the lessons for public health people, I mean, this is coming uh, from their publications early in the 20th century, one of the things that they emphasized in the period after the pandemic was, um, well, they were they were a very chastened and uh, humble lot afterwards, public health officers. Um, you know, a quote I like to use a lot is from a British officer of health who said there's no question of keeping the wolf out of the sheepfold, which is a very sad statement in a way. But he used that to illustrate the importance of uh, public trust, right? The, the ongoing relationship of trust between public health and the average person. Um, because in a pandemic situation, it's, it doesn't go well when that trust is eroded. And I think about that issue going forward because people are tired. Um, speaking for myself, I can say I'm tired. My family is tired of um, lockdown and we're not particularly economically affected, we're very fortunate in that way. Um, so we need to m keep an eye on where people's faith in the decision making around the economic shutdown is. And the other thing is that it's really important to remember that social unrest often comes from a very deep place. And um, we might want to kind of marginalize people who are protesting. And we might uh, be tempted to think we know who they are or why they're doing it. But uh, I think that that's probably not the case. And so, uh, you know, caring about what people are experiencing is really important, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense to you on the surface of things. Um, the other thing I guess I, I think about is the resilience that people showed from that time period. You know, in, in Canada, we lost 60,000 people uh, to the war itself. And then we lost another 55,000 people to the pandemic. And people survived that. Of course, there was uh, a lot of 
you know, severe impacts on families. Um, but they really relied on each other. And they also, in the period after World War I and after the pandemic, struggled for a better world. It takes us a long time to get there, but it is one of the things that pushes us toward Medicare, toward insured medical services, toward a greater role for the state. In between there somewhere, there's some, you know, the Great Depression, which has its own role as a catalyst in that. Um, but people are, are amazingly resilient, which sounds like a cliche, but when you look at it historically, you can see how extremely important community is to them. So in a lot of cases, then it is community that keeps people alive, not so much what the government gets up to. Um, and, you know, that can be a critique, of course, of the weaknesses of government policy, but it's also a testament to how much people are, um, their humanity, really, the humanity that people displayed. That's not always the case in disease outbreaks, because, of course, historically, you see a lot of stigmatization and scapegoating. Um, the Black Death is the classic example of that, where groups like um, Jews in Europe are scapegoated as disease vectors. But there's lots and lots of examples. Outbreaks of plague um, in the early 20th century for which Asian um, Americans were blamed and so on. In 1918-19 in Canada, we don't see a great amount of scapegoating. And that's very important, right? Because it speaks to this kind of underlying social solidarity. And maybe it's because of four years of war, or maybe it's because this was just a transformative moment for people when their reliance on each other was greater than their desire to look for an enemy to blame. That's actually a really helpful perspective. And I thank you for taking the time to outline a historian's perspective on, on how we might think about epidemics. I really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, thanks so much for your interest in it. Thanks again. I've been speaking with Essel Jones, professor of history at the University of Manitoba. She's also the author of the award-winning book, Influenza 1918, Disease, Death, and Struggle in Winnipeg. To read the article she wrote, visit cmaj.ca. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, deputy editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.